Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, joined by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Greetings to everyone. You're actually not going to hear too much from me in this episode. Instead, you'll hear a conversation Peter had with Reed Hunt, the author of A Crisis Wasted, Barack Obama's Defining Decisions. If the title sounds familiar, that might be because it echoes this famous remark from Rahm Emanuel, then the chief of staff to President-elect Barack Obama way back in 2008. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. Now over to Peter, who I'll rejoin briefly toward the end of the podcast. Thanks, Adam. A bit more about Reed Hunt. He served President Clinton as head of the FCC, then worked on Obama's transition team. Hunt is about as much of an insider as you can be. He went to prep school with Al Gore, college with Bush 43, and law school with Bill and Hillary Clinton. Now he's an advisor to Dean Acheson's old law firm. That is what makes a crisis wasted so compelling. It's a Democrat from the highest levels of the political establishment, making a very convincing case that even before Obama was sworn in, he was making decisions that laid the foundation for Donald Trump's election. It's important to remember now that we're talking about 2008, right in the wake of the great stock market crash, unemployment is flying higher, the world is on the brink of what many people feared would be a depression perhaps as bad as that of the 1930s. But anyway, take a listen. You make a very strong case for the fact that Obama made almost all the key domestic decisions for his presidency even before he was inaugurated. He's the only president in the history of the United States who made all of his fateful determining decisions before his inauguration. What does that mean? It means that he tied himself into a political partnership with the existing administration. That's something Franklin Roosevelt resolutely decided not to do between his election in November of 1932 and his inauguration in March of 1933. And at the time, a number of people didn't like the uh, this partnership. Uh, Larry Summers argued that there ought to be, quote, discontinuity, unquote. Um, I wasn't in the same meetings with access to Barack Obama then, but I also felt um, this, this is a mistake. It's actually the Bush administration policies that have created the situation uh, that in turn, you know, was wrecking the economy. And the Bush administration is not really going to be uh, uh, the group that is going to think of how to save uh, Main Street because Hank Paulson was focused so much on saving Wall Street as he knew it. But there was there was this uh, other set of uh, advocates, uh, you know, Tim Geithner, especially Tim Geithner, um, Peter Orzag, you know, their strong view. And the view of a lot of Obama supporters on Wall Street was, you all don't know how bad the situation really is. The bank runs will never stop. The government has to prioritize saving the existing uh, financial sector uh, in its structure, in its leadership, in its role in the economy. That has to come first and foremost, and everything else 
takes second place. I wonder, again, in reading your book, it struck me that these days and weeks and months even sort of foreshadowed um, uh, a fatal flaw in the early years of the Obama administration, which was his call for bipartisanship. Now, bipartisanship in theory is a nice thing, but couldn't an argument be made that did bipartisanship in a way turn him into uh, an unwitting GOP tool? Well, I don't think it would ever, I would never want to call Barack Obama a tool, right? Because he's so smart, has such high integrity and thinks through all these issues. And, you know, really in terms of his character, he has to be in the very top rank of all American presidents and certainly American politicians. You know, having said all that, the fundamental decision to prioritize the the restoration of Wall Street and the end of bank runs over everything else, that was a mistake uh, of confusing means and ends. What do I mean? The only right end, the only right purpose of economic policy in the great crash was to improve the standard of living of all Americans. That meant that it was necessary to get from swelling unemployment all the way back to full employment in a hurry. And that meant that after full employment, wages needed to start going up after two decades of them not going up, and I mean wages for everybody. That meant that new public services need to be created, um, particularly in, in transportation, broadband, and public education. Those were the goals. And thinking that by ending bank runs, inevitably those goals would be accomplished, that didn't make any sense at the time. It didn't make, doesn't make any sense in retrospect. It didn't happen. And the disappointment of not achieving the high and rising standard of living for all Americans in those eight years, that's what created the opportunity uh, seized by Donald Trump. It's a classic strategic mistake, confusing means and ends, and thinking that if you achieve your means, you've achieved your ends. That's the mistake that tragically makes me call this whole time period a crisis wasted. I happen to agree with you. The day before Donald Trump was elected, I was talking to a political veteran who spent his entire life at Boston City Hall. He predicted a Trump victory. And when I asked him why, he said, because Obama didn't send anyone to jail. I thought that's a bit simple, but the day after the election, I saw his point. So part of the decision to prioritize the restoration of Wall Street was, in fact, the decision not to look for what Theodore Roosevelt called the malefactors of great wealth, not to even look for them. You know, not to indict them, not to prosecute them. They did exist. But part of the decision to prioritize Wall Street was to forget about that. Part of the decision was invest in these banks, uh, but don't require that they take the new money once confidence was restored and invest in America. Part of the decision was, well, don't make the banks restructure any loans and let the um, as it turned out, you know, 10 million American families go ahead and lose their houses, you know, by foreclosure or by 
for sale or by some other technique. All of these corollaries that even to say them, they, they, they kind of make your skin crawl, right? They're all corollaries of the fundamental decision that first and foremost, you know, Wall Street had to be, had to be supported. And that's, that's an original mistake of intention that haunted, uh, uh, so tragically haunted the Obama administration for eight years. Events, as you know better than most, are very hard to control, let alone forecast. But you point out how unemployment turned out to be much worse than some very smart people thought it would be. And you alluded to the number of um, homes that were lost, that were foreclosed. I mean, it, it turned out that the administration had uh, estimated in good faith that about $5 million would be lost. And as you pointed out, it was double that. What's it like to be in government and, you know, working with numbers that are just assumptions that you have to improvise with? First of all, in any crisis, whether you're in government, whether you're in business, whether you're working in a nonprofit, whether you're working, you know, in a TV station or a radio station, in any crisis, you need to plan for the worst and hope for the best. You don't plan for the best, right? You plan for the worst. So you look at the situation and then you imagine, as Henry James said, you have an imagination of disaster. You imagine you know, how bad it could really be. And that exercise was overcome by wishful thinking and Pollyannish predictions, and that was, that was, a, that, that was a mistake. Number two. Is all of this being said by me with hindsight? Well, actually, no. Uh, as the 48 some odd interviews that I did reveal, and, and you know, the people are quoted amply in the book, and every single person quoted approved their quotes and got to edit them so that they actually were allowed to say exactly what they wanted to say. The the interviews all make it very clear that it was predicted by the smart economists in the Obama team and outside the Obama team. It was predicted that the full employment goal, 4%, 5%, 3.5% unemployment, where we are right now, that that could not be achieved in the short term unless the stimulus was somewhere around $1.5 trillion instead of less than half of that. It was all known. And the decision was made to not starkly inform the president-elect of that at a big meeting on December 16, 2008. And the decision was made to not tell the American people that. And the decision was made to not tell the United States Congress that. Now, th- this was uh, in, in Larry Summers' ballpark, uh, f- former Harvard president, former secretary of the Treasury, uh, world-famous economist. I- am I wrong about that? It certainly was the case that uh, Larry Summers was the assembler and final author of the decision memo given to the president-elect on December 16, 2008, where they decided to have the stimulus be less than half of, uh, or about half at the most of what was necessary. But it is also true that other people on the Obama team aimed low. 
Rahm Emanuel, the uh, incoming chief of staff, aimed low. Peter Orzeg wanted the number to be low and not high because he worried about the budget. Tim Geithner wanted the number to be low and not appropriate because he thought they might need even more money for Congress to invest another $700 billion in the banks. And so, you know, because that was his priority, putting people back to work, you know, took a, a second, maybe even a distant second. So there were a lot of people in these discussions, and they all collectively decided to tell the president-elect to aim low and to aim at a goal that would not achieve full employment until his re-election year, 2012. That meant that they knew or should have known that the Democrats would lose the House in 2010 because they wouldn't be close to full employment by 2010, two years later. The idea that they would regard control of the House as expendable was a horrific because we saw in the Clinton administration that when he lost control of the House two years after his presidential election, you know, he was stymied. Ultimately, they impeached him, right? I mean, you're, 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 you're playing into the hands of the opposition party. Why did they do that? Uh, they did that because, oh gosh, they did that because they wanted to get the stimulus over with and move on to these reform measures we talked about earlier. But the right economic policy was to improve the standard of living for all Americans. It struck me in reading your book that th there was an element of Barack Obama, splendid public servant that he was, sharp individual that he is, that he almost willfully ignored lessons that FDR learned during the New Deal and the Great Depression. Am I overstating that? You're, you're right to mention Franklin Roosevelt because everybody actually at that time in 2008 talked about Franklin Roosevelt's 100 days. One of the major labor uh, union leaders in the country, uh, you know, gave Barack Obama a, a book um, by Robert Alter about those, about those years. Everybody said, let's see how Roosevelt led the country out of the depression morally and spiritually, maybe more than it even economically, by seizing the moment and restating or stating directly how serious was the problem and rallying the country behind him. But but that's not that's not a message that the Obama team uh, felt comfortable with. Uh, they felt that the uh, country wouldn't support that kind of rallying behind Obama. They felt that bipartisanship and Republican cooperation was what he'd already embraced in the Roosevelt room. And that was the deal, you know, the understanding with Paulson. They felt that was the way to really have a popular base that reasonable people would, you know, in, on the Republican side would join and, and then would empower the passage of all these different reform measures we talked about earlier. That was a... Um, political misjudgment of the first order. But what I really think is important is the decision made was to not level with the American people. So on uh, January 10, uh, the Obama team, which was still 10 days away from the inauguration, published a document saying that absent the stimulus, the unemployment rate would be a little more than 9%, very bad. 
uh, but they knew the day before that that prediction was wrong. They knew it the day before. And the reason they knew it the day before is that the day before January 9, the Bureau of Labor Statistics published the December unemployment numbers. And from those numbers, you could tell that the January 10 prediction of the of what would happen was inaccurate. They didn't decide to tell the truth. And what Christy Romer, you know, who was the chief economist in, in the advisory team, you know, said is that to this day she wonders why she wasn't allowed to tell the truth. You and I are using the frame of reference Obama's team. But as you point out, Obama's team was drawn largely from the ranks of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Did that make a difference? Well, it did make a difference uh, because uh, what it meant is that Barack Obama didn't bring a new wave of people in with him. He didn't reach out beyond what I would call uh, mainstream or conventional neoliberal thinking to get other kinds of inputs. He didn't recruit, for example, the banker of the year to be the treasury secretary. He didn't invite the critical moments the um, economists who were not aligned uh, with Summers, the you know the Joe Stiglitzes and the Paul Krugmans and the Robert Reiches, all of these people said the stimulus is too small. You've got to get Americans back to work faster. There's hell to pay if you don't do this. They all said it at the time. So it's not hindsight. These were real choices. Let me say something else that's so sad to relate. At the exact same time, the Chinese faced the exact same situation because the global financial crisis had horrible impacts on uh, uh, employment in every country. And the Chinese in the fall of 2008 saw that one third of their college graduates wouldn't be able to get jobs. That was more than 2 million people. And that about 15 to 20 million manufacturing workers also would lose their jobs because the global export trade would so diminish. And what they decided to do was a stimulus that was adjusting for the relative sizes of the economy was about three times bigger than the American stimulus. The result of that from 2008 to the present is that the Chinese economy has performed much better than the American economy. And that translates to the following. The Chinese as a country, has become the biggest global investor, the biggest shaper and driver of the global economy. The United States was the most important investor driving the global economy from 1945 until 2008. And now because of the decisions made in 2008 and the crisis of 2008, the Chinese took our place. This is not good for the United States. It has positioned us uh, in a um, strategically poor way in the current trade war with China. But it's also really bad for the American people because if we had maintained the level of investment that, that existed from 1945 to 2008, our economy today would be $4 trillion bigger. $4 trillion bigger, that's a lot of wage growth, that's a lot of job creation, that's a lot of better offness for Americans. 
what advice would you give whomever is the Democratic nominee to challenge Donald Trump? Well, they don't need my advice because all the candidates are already relitigating all the decisions of 2008. Uh, Jay Inslee, the climate change candidate, is saying, forget about cap and trade, forget about carbon tax. We ought to have a green bank that drives investment in clean power and all electricity prices should stay the same or go down, meaning the middle class should be better off. They shouldn't be taxed. And uh, Cory Booker is talking about baby bonds, which is a way to start investment at birth for um, for the new Americans who, you know, who, who, who were delivered in the hospital. Uh, and uh, Elizabeth Warren is talking about reform of the financial uh, sector, which, you know, she clearly has in mind, you know, the the um, financial crisis of 2008. And then Joe Biden uh, seems to be saying, well, you know, I think we did pretty well in 2008. But they're all they're all debating and relitigating already the decisions of 2008 because, as you said at the beginning of our uh, lovely chat. That was that was the major event uh, of, of the century so far, and just in the same way that debates about what was done in the 1930s have continued for now almost 100 years, so we should expect that the crisis of 2008 and the reaction to it will shape politics and not just uh, you know alter the history books, but but uh, have impact on the future course of America. Uh, certainly in 2020, but for many years beyond. Adam, does this ring true to you? Or or let me rephrase that, try to narrow it down. Um, Do you feel you understand today's political situation a little better, having listened to Reid Hunt explain how basically the Obama administration blew it? I'll give you two yeses, both to your first question. It does ring true, and I do feel like it sheds new light on on the moment that we're living in. I think it's also a valuable corrective. The Trump era is so exhausting and bizarre every single day that I think it can be easy to pine for a time of what we remember as relative stability. But you listen to the sort of the, the indictment that Reed Hunt has drawn up around President Obama. I mean, failing to alleviate large-scale human misery, ceding control of the House of Representatives, paving the way for the election of a man who is intent on completely dismantling every single aspect of your legacy and ceding the United States' position economically in the world vis-a-vis China. I mean, that those are huge things to screw up. And uh, I feel like Reed Hunt has done a a service in reminding people that the Obama era wasn't the idol that uh, it might look like in retrospect right now. Is there any one thing or two things that Reed said that really sticks with you? I, I have one, but I want to see. All right, I'll give what you mine. Is. Yeah, not wanting to be like FDR. Ah, it's so strange to me that Obama wouldn't want to be seen as an FDR-like figure. And I know that FDR, as much as he's romanticized by uh, Republicans now, didn't, was it Reagan who said that he was an FDR Democrat back in well, the he, day? he was. Yeah, that he, he was. Right, that he was. Uh, I know that FDR at the time got a ton of pushback from Republicans and conservatives, but 
for a, a figure like Obama, who did not have the beefiest resume, to not want to be compared at the outset of his presidency to this beloved, iconic figure who's seen as bringing America back from the brink, that, that kind of blows me away. Well, let me share mine. Um, although, having listened to you, that <laughs> that's what should have shocked me the most. No, when um, the Obama administration, on the eve of the inauguration, basically allowed, you know, lower estimates of unemployment to go out yeah. because they didn't want to tinker with their grand plan. What that reminds me of is the way LBJ inflated the body counts in Vietnam. You know, it is of a form of um, of lying, or, or to put it diplomatically, being less than truthful. But by this time, the administration had their plans. Well, first, we're going to fix the economy, which we have to remember was on the verge. The, the, the entire world economy was on the verge of collapse. It was a terrifying moment. And, and, and so it is easy for us to sit back and double think this. Um, I grant Reed Hunt the right to do so because he said himself yeah. he went back and talked to all the players. And but. You know, they wanted health care. They wanted education reform. Um, I'm glad you mentioned those. Those are the reforms that Hunt was alluding, alluding to, that they wanted yeah. to you know, take care of this economics thing and then get on with those. Yeah, that economics thing. That economics thing. <laughs> I'm actually really glad that you mentioned uh, those those not honest, why don't I use the word dishonest, unemployment uh, projections, because it's interesting to compare that fudge to use a very generous term, with President Trump's much-discussed uh, misrepresentation of the numbers at his inaugural. I mean, we we <laughs> obsessed over that, right? We in the media, the American public as a whole, Trump skeptics, we wouldn't stop talking about, okay, here's this, this blatant untruth. Um, the president, President Trump, obviously has a proclivity for untruths for which there was no real comparison under President Obama. But if you want to talk about meaningful pieces of misinformation delivered at the start of a term. Uh, you can make the case, as I think Reed Hunt does, that not being honest about where unemployment was going to head was far more damaging. Yeah. You know, I'm going to make a final point, and then I'm going to let you have the last word. This is a book that, first of all, every single candidate running for president, no matter how long a shot they are, should read. But um, I... I think when you have an individual as smart as Obama was and you see what a monumental job being president is, that um, recommending no candidate, but people should think really hard and long about how much experience and talent is out there for those Democrats, if they be Democrats, they're going to vote for. But I'm going to let you have the last word. Well, I'm going to uh, cheat and throw a question your way <laughs> to give you the last word. But I guess one thing that I wonder, and I do find Reed Hunt's argument really compelling, extremely well delivered. One thing that I do wonder is how much of a difference it would have made if he had acted differently in all these areas. Because I happen to be one of those people who think that, among other things, we would not have President Donald Trump if he had not campaigned on the heels of the first African-American president. Now, the stuff we've talked about 
you know, maybe Obama felt he needed to be more moderate or more bipartisan because he was the first African-American president. But I do wonder, let's say he'd pursued an incredibly aggressive stimulus package uh, that, um, well, what's the name of the, the New York Times guy, beloved, the, the beloved by liberals economist whose name I'm Krugman, blanking right now. Thank Krugman. you, Paul Krugman. Let's say Paul, Nobel Prize winning. Paul Krugman, let's say, was, uh, you know, pointing the way and Obama followed his cues. Would it have kept President Trump, then Donald Trump, from stirring up birtherism? And would it really have kept the Tea Party from existing? Or would we have had some sort of a modified Tea Party? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I guess that's the one thing I'm left wondering. No, the the Tea Party, I feel confident that the Tea Party would have arisen. And they were a formidable force. They effectively took over the Republican Party until Donald Trump took it over. Um, I'll tell you, I, I don't want to insist too much on this, but uh, the old City Hall veteran, I quote, or I, I asked Reed about the guy who said nobody went to jail. Yep. I think that goes a long way. Um, it, it's not the only answer, but it would have helped diffuse this sense by that small band of former, relatively small band of former Democratic voters who went for Trump, that nobody cared about them. Um, that rings true. Yeah. All right. That is going to do it for another episode of The Scrum. Thanks to Reed Hunt for talking with Peter Kadzis. And as always, thanks to you for listening. We'd love it if you subscribed to The Scrum, if you haven't already, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere, really. We'd also love to hear from you. You can reach us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam and Peter, your handle is at Kadzis. We get crucial engineering and production help week in and week out from Doug Sugartz, Andrew Massawa, Gary Mott, and John Parker. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thank you.